0: well, can I just go home after that? (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Hmm, Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, I, I too, am glad to be home. This is truly not where I was born and raised, but this is where I lived the most years of my life, of the life that I've lived so far. And there have been some wonderful memories in Baton Rouge and... and, uh, I left a lot of people behind that I love, and a lot of children behind that I love, uh, and it's just so good to be here. Uh, it's also good to be at Heritage Day. This was always high priority in my my program to be at Heritage Day every year, and in the last few years, we have a little trip up to a country inn up in in North Carolina that we make every spring and see wildflowers, and it has conflicted, and so I've opted for the trip instead of Heritage Day, and this year y'all had it earlier, so I'm I'm grateful for that. I want to also say that uh, our friend uh, Ethel H., that many of you know from Metairie, for those that know know Ethel, that she was supposed to be here today, but unfortunately she's Either in the operating room or just coming out from gallbladder surgery, and she did not plan that. That was just the way it was. But she graciously gave away her ticket to this and to something else tomorrow. And so y'all keep her in her prayers. In your prayers. And while we're praying, uh, uh, Monday I'm going to have surgery for a torn rotator cuff. So please pray for me. So uh, that's going to be kind of hard not having my right arm for a while. But. Uh, I know it's going to be well. I'm really optimistic about this surgery, but I believe prayers work wonders, and that will help. Uh, I want to thank my (laughs) daughter-in-law for inviting me since she was the chairman of this. It is really an honor to be up here. I, I feel very, very honored. It brings back a lot of memories for me because I was here when it started. I'm going to get composed in a minute. Uh, Barbara K. Miller is the one who was chairman of the al Nine office at the time, and this was Barbara's idea to have Heritage Day. She thought it was important for people in the program, and especially people coming in relatively new, to see really recovery, long-time recovery, and people who had walked that walk ahead of them. And... and, and, uh, so that was her idea. And so uh, this is the 18th? Okay, so 18 years ago we started, and the first one was at the Hilton, I believe, and Arbutus O was the speaker. And for any of you that were at the uh, our convention last June, Arbutus spoke. Sunday morning, I didn't even know she was still alive, y'all. I mean, she, she had been in the program since before program, really. And, and uh, I mean, she is truly one of those black belt al you hear about. But I tell you, she was just wonderful last June. I just, I just couldn't believe it. And then the next year, this is where we were. This was uh, 17 years ago. And I was chairman of the office at that time. And I think it was Ruth that said, why don't you ask Elsa C. to come be the speaker? So uh, I did. And Elsa came from California, and she was such a gift in my life. Oh, come on now, Pat. (laughs) (laughs) Settle down here. Anyway, because I was the chairman, I got to invite her. I got to pick her up and be with her and... And because this is a long way to come just for a luncheon, uh, uh, my sponsor, Betty, who can't be here now because she's ended up sick over in Mandeville. She was coming. But uh, Betty and I whisked Elsa away after this luncheon and took her to Natchez. It was pilgrimage time, and Natchez is where I'm from, and I'm proud of that. And so we had a couple of extra days with Elsa. And I, you know, I consider that such an honor to have had her as my friend for those. It wasn't long because Elsa was 84 when I met her, but I learned so much from Elsa. Uh, You know, one of my favorite sayings that uh, that Elsa said here 17 years ago is, we wouldn't worry so much about what other people think about us if we only realized how seldom they do.
1: (laughs) You know, and I remember that. I
0: remember that. So, well, uh, when I still lived here, one time we were, I was getting ready to go to the symphony. I had season tickets with some friends, and I was in my closet trying to figure out what I was going to wear and trying to remember what I had worn to the last one. And I thought, finally I thought, you know, why am I worrying about this? If I can't remember what I wore, why do I think anybody else knows I cares what I wear at the symphony? So, anyway, uh, Elsa was a great teacher. She She really was, and if you've not heard her tapes, Uh, You know, maybe you can get some tapes from Elsa Chamberlain and listen to her. She was just an institution in in Al-Anon. And then, of course, Barbara spoke here uh, on our 10th Heritage Day, which was so appropriate since this was hers. And, of course, both Elsa and Barbara are no longer with us, and so I talked to them this morning, as well as some of my other favorite people. Like... Alberta and Sally C. Uh, anyway, what I want to say is for those of you who are young, you know, we used to have somebody who's what we call an old-timer up here. And if you want to know how do you get to be an old-timer, they say you just keep coming to meetings and you don't die. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've been coming and I haven't died. So, you know, I'm now an old-timer. Now, I want to say that in my life, I have come to believe that that uh, it's all about learning lessons, and we have a lot of lessons we have to learn in this life that we have. Some of us have a longer life than others and and uh, so I just keep looking for the lessons in the in the wonderful, beautiful things that happen and in the things that aren't so beautiful you know there's we go through a lot of pain sometimes and and that's just part of it uh I'm also not a funny speaker. There's some people in this program who tell wonderful stories, and and I'm not one of them. I mean, they are just funny. I mean, when they talk, they're funny. I mean, Sylvia's one of them. She wasn't funny today. She got kind of nostalgic. <laughs> but uh, you know, we just they just had that. That joy about them and, and I hope I have a joy, but i really uh, i 'm just not that kind of person, so don 't be looking for the laughs but i will I will tell you that i don 't know how long i 've got a Piris that the tape lasts an hour and a half. I promised him i wouldn 't go that long, but uh, I will tell you my favorite one of my favorite little stories, and I usually start with this to kind of relax me and it was about the the young fellow who just got out of the seminary and he got his first assignment as a preacher in this little Country church, way out in the middle of nowhere, and so he he was so nervous and so excited all at the same time and he went that first that first Sunday and he gets there you know two hours ahead of time, and of course nobody's there, and he just keeps studying and and all and and an hour beforehand, and nobody's there and thirty minutes before church, and nobody's there fifteen minutes and nobody's there and in five minutes and nobody's there and finally, right about on the hour this one farmer came walking in and uh, he greeted him and and then he just kind of twiddled his thumbs and it was five or ten minutes after the hour and he finally looked at the farmer and said well I, I really don't know what to do and the farmer said well what do you mean and he said well you know it's time to start but you're the only one here and the farmer said well if I had a whole head of cattle and it was time for them to eat and only one came I sure would feed it. So with that, he started. And he talked and he talked and he talked. And an hour and a half later, when he finished, he looked at the farmer and he said, Well, how did I do? And the farmer said, Well, I tell you what, if only one cow came in to eat, I sure wouldn't have given it the whole load. (laughs) (laughs) So I tell you that because you might get the whole load. You know what we do in this program is we share our experience, strength, and hope. And and you know when when you get up in age, you've got a lot of experience. And so I will tell you that I was born 68 and uh, two thirds years ago in Natchez, Mississippi. And uh, so that's. That's why I've got a lot of story. I've got I've got a lot of life here. And I always put my age out there first, and then y'all can just relax, and I can try to figure out how old I am. <laughs> I mean, because, see, I'm on, I've been on that side a lot, and I always try to figure out how old the speaker is. <laughs> so, I figure you do, too. Uh, I could have been in this program the day I was born. My daddy was an alcoholic, and that is such a common thread with a lot of us, that we come from alcoholic homes. My daddy was a binge alcoholic. Alcoholic. If he if he took a drink, it led to the next drink, and it may have taken a couple of days or so. But then he got drunk, and he stayed drunk until he got sober, and that's a binge alcoholic. And uh, then there were those times of sobriety, dryness. I don't know what you want to call it. In between, no program, just not drinking. But I loved him. My daddy had a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, I was named for him. I look like him. I think I have a lot of the addictive personality that he's got. He was uh, he was kind and loving and uh, a lot of fun to be with. Then my my mother was a wonderful person and mother. There was no such thing back then as al but she would have made a wonderful member of this program. My mother. My mother gave my daddy a gift way back then that not many people got, and that 's that somehow or other my mother knew it was not my daddy 's fault that he drank or that he didn 't know couldn 't drink or didn 't know how to drink and that was truly a gift and and she prayed an awful lot. Uh, to Saint Jude, and those of you that are Catholics know that he's the patron saint of impossible cases, so i'm sure she was praying about my daddy but uh anyway she she just she was a spiritual person as well as a a religious person and and she would have she would have gotten this program real well. I have one sister who is almost three years older than I and and naste Stella, Stella is she was the good one, and she was uh, studious and, and uh, dependable, and I was a little bit more rambunctious, and and I was a tomboy. I was the closest thing Daddy ever got to having a little boy. You know, I'm the one who went to all the ball games with him. But as I want to say back to my mother that as wonderful as she was, because we were living in an alcoholic home, there was still those family secrets, and the big one of the big secrets that. <laughs> I was having a crisis in my marriage uh, when I went home for my twenty fifth class reunion, and I was not going to tell my mother about that, but I just it came out. and of course, it had to do with Mickey's drinking. And Mother said, "Well, I know exactly how you feel." She said, "Remember, I got as close as having the divorce papers drawn up one time. first time I'd ever heard that." Daddy died in my senior year in high school. I had no idea that my mother had gone to that length. Not that it went through, but it went that far anyway. And she had not ever told me that. Uh, I don't talk about my childhood much. I I was blessed to be in this little town of Natchez and go to this little small Catholic school. And uh, I, I just don't have a heap whole lot of memories and possibly it's because of what we call repression. If you remember that beautiful song, The Way We Were, there's a line in there that says, things may be beautiful, and yet what's too painful to remember, we simply choose to forget. Now, I don't think I have chosen consciously to forget my childhood, but I think that there are probably some things that, but if I ever need to know them, I'll know them when I'm supposed to know them. Uh, when I was 19 years old, I met Mickey. And uh, we were up on Lake St. John near Natchez, which is where we all went. A lot of people had uh, camps and all up there. And uh, he was just so much fun. Everybody loved Mickey. They just gravitated to him. And he had this wonderful sense of humor and was fun to be with and loving and kind and so sensitive, so overly sensitive. And when I describe Mickey, I think I'm describing my daddy. I think I'm describing every alcoholic I know. That's the way they are, and I love them. I, I'm just drawn to alcoholics. Uh, Mickey and I married six years. I mean, six months later, we were two kids in love, uh, and he was a good salesman, and I was pregnant. And I don't like to stand up here and say that from this podium, but that is what happened. And if there' young people here, you're probably saying, "Well, so what's the big deal?" Well, I want to tell you, almost 50 years ago, that was a very big deal. I did not know anybody who got pregnant when they were not married that carried a child and kept them. Uh, What you would do is either run off to see fictitious Aunt Susie for six months and have that baby and give them up for adoption, or you made up a lie that you were married, you know, ran off and got married and didn't tell anybody until then, or the baby was early, And, of course, I think the last one is the one that that we did, that the baby came early. And I lived with that for so long, and I'm so very grateful that this program gave me the tools to get rid of that shame and that guilt that I carried for so long. When we got married way back then, what people did was start families, I mean, they didn't plan everything like they do now. I laughingly, I told somebody, we went to Grandparents Day last year at one of the children's schools. I saw this young fella helping his his very elderly-looking grandmother walk across with a walking stick, and I said, you know, if these young people... Don't quit waiting so long to get married and have babies. They're not going to need grandparents' day anymore because they aren't going to be any of us. But, uh, I mean, we did. Seriously, back then, most people started having their families right, right after they got married. That's just the way we did it, and I do not regret that. When I was uh, in in high school, I think I decided that I really would like to have five children, and I wanted four boys and one girl, and that is exactly what we have, and we'd been married six years. Mickey was a hunter, and Mickey used to say that we overshot the limit and that when we'd been married right under 12 years, we had uh, six boys and three girls, and, and my children are certainly my greatest asset. Just wonderful. Uh, for, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, you know, when you when you got that many children in that short of a time, I really was too busy to get any crazier than I got. I mean, you just you can't just sit around and rock in the rocking chair or stay in the bed and pull the sheet up over your head. You, there's just too much to do. And I know, and I know if I hadn't had all that to do, I, I really would have gotten so self-obsessed with different things and and. Uh, I, I would have truly been a basket case. I was bad enough as it was, but uh, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't have to tell people. Uh, usually, they can figure out that I'm Catholic, and, and Ruth likes it when I say that Mickey was just a passionate Presbyterian. <laughs> That's how we ended up with all these things. And that that then I'll get to tell you my other one. And this one came out of the paper one day, and I loved it. It was about the young farmer, another farmer, who went to the state fair, and he took his. Uh, 14 children and he wanted to, they wanted to see that championship bull. And so he went up to the owner who was the one selling the tickets and said, me and my children came to see your bull and we were wondering if you would make us a special price. And that owner looked at him and he said, I tell you what, mister, you staying right there, I'm going to bring my bull out to see you.
1: <laughs> so
0: anyway, and then the other one, and this is true, before we left Natchez, uh, I went to Mickey's store one day, and I had four of the kids in the car. When I got out, I picked up the then baby, and I was pregnant with the fifth. And Mickey was talking to uh, one of his customers, whom I had heard about, but I didn't know. And he introduced me, and the fella looked at me, and I'd never seen this man before, and he asked me that stupid question, My gosh, girl, don't y'all know what's causing it? And I said, Yeah, but we like it. <laughs> So that shut him up.
1: <laughs> and, of course, Steve likes
0: to say that, that I had a hearing problem, that I was slightly hard of hearing. And every night Mickey would say, go to bed. And he'd say, Do you want to go to bed or what? And I'd say, what? <laughs> oh, well. Uh, anyway, getting back to these children, they, they really were a great... I, they They really did keep me from getting any crazy, and also they kept me from doing some of the things that that some other people do. My wonderful sister uh mother and daddy had given or well mother had given her the house, and mother had euusuphfruct and was there with her and and we had moved to to Baton Rouge in nineteen sixty and uh so my sister also has nine children. We both have six boys and three girls. That's our conversation piece. And so what the reason the children were an asset is because nobody wanted me to come home to mama. You know, I couldn't go home to my mama with my nine children in the house where my sister's nine children were. So that kept me from running away like I, I wanted to at times. I really wanted to at times. We all want to run away from this illness at times. I also, uh, I talked to uh, one of our priests in Natchez. I know once, I think a couple of times, my memory tells me that what he said was, if I would do this better or if I would not do this, then Mickey wouldn't maybe Mickey wouldn't drink so much. And I always like to throw this out and tell people, if you need to talk to somebody, if you need some counseling, clergy is not always the best place to go. Frequently, it's the worst. Uh, Sometimes, a lot of times, clergy still do not understand that alcoholism is an illness and it's not anybody's fault. Uh, So I just want to share that with you. You know, if you go for counseling and if you feel like you need it, go. But go to somebody that you know is well-versed in this illness. Uh, Mickey's Drinking caused a lot of problems while we were still in Natchez. And, you know, I don't know that I really, I I don't know that I even thought about it being alcoholic at all, because he didn't drink like my daddy drank. Mickey didn't drink every day. He didn't drink every night. He didn't drink every weekend. He didn't get drunk every time he drank. He didn't get drunk and stay drunk. I mean, he could drink two or three drinks and, and just be the life of the party, uh But sometimes he drank more, and of course, the longer we went, the more it got to be and then he wasn't the life of the party uh but uh, we moved to Baton Rouge in nineteen sixty We had five children when we moved we had the the second batch <laughs> in Baton Rouge and you know what uh we We took this illness with us isn't that surprising? you know we think we think we're going to run away, but those geographic cures just do not work, do they? But I want to read you uh, one little thing out of this out of this uh, courage to change. I, one of the things I do is, is go talk to family members of people in treatment. Uh, I usually do that once a month, and this is the page out of this book that I read every time. But um, no, it's, it's March the 14th. Uh, this is so important, and I ask them to please listen hard to this. Active alcoholics are people who drink. They don't drink because of you or me, but because they are alcoholics. No matter what I do, I will not change this fact, not with guilt, shouting, begging, distracting, hiding money or bottles or keys, lying, threatening, or reasoning. I didn't cause alcoholism. I can't control it, and I can't cure it. And I did not know that then, and I did all of the above. I kept trying everything I knew to to fix this little problem that we had. And, of course, uh, like I say, geographic cures don't work. We just moved to Baton Rouge, took all that garbage with us, and it, it, this illness is also progressive, and it, it got worse. It didn't get better. But, you know, I think about uh, another old-timer here in Baton Rouge who one time, at a meeting, and she was talking about how we we uh, we get worse and we don't know it. We don't see what's happening to us, and it's because it's it's all going downhill. But it's not like this. It's like this. You know, it's a little at a time that we just get sicker and sicker and sicker until, if we were looking at a movie, you know, we could really compare about it. But it's hard to see it when it's slow and insidious like that. So we just kept doing all these same things in Baton Rouge. And then about 10 years later, 11 years, uh, 1971 is the timeline where I am now, and these five oldest children had begun to grow up, and they were doing some of the things that children did back in the 70s, and we were very fearful about all of that, that we were totally distracted. We knew that, that some of them were... We thought some of them were using drugs. We knew some of them were using drugs. And we were afraid that one or two of them might even be dealing drugs, which, of course, you do. When you don't have any money and you use drugs, you've got to find a way to pay for your supply, and that's what they do. Now, I can talk about it here now and not sound very emotional about that. Uh, I was pretty damn emotional about it back then. I mean, it was eating our lunch. We were so afraid and, and so stressed out. And I honestly believe that any stress that we don't handle properly is going to show itself in the weakest part of our bodies. And for Mickey, this man who loved to bird hunt could no longer walk enough to bird hunt without all of the pain. His was angina and heart trouble. And he ended up down at Ochsner in New Orleans having bypass surgery in October of 1972, which was almost pioneer stage of, of bypass surgery. And for me, it was my stomach. I ended up with duodenitis. I'd go to bed practically every night, turn over, and that stomach would just knot up, and I would be in the bathroom before long, throwing up, a diarrhea, and so that's what was happening. And then the one that we were the most concerned about graduated in in 1973, and he decided that he was going to leave town uh, and go up on the East Coast, and uh, He said he wanted to get away from it all. And, you know, that's what we wanted to hear. We believe what we want to hear. And so I I don't know that we could have stopped him had we tried, but I don't have any recall of trying to stop him from going. And uh, so he went up there, and he was not there long when he met this young girl, and he married her. And that, you know, that marriage was had three strikes against it from the start. They were both young. He was 18, she was 16. She was pregnant, he was using. Not a good formula for a good marriage. But anyway, they did have our first grandchild, and we were excited about that. Then in 1975, uh, we had a priest come to my church here in Baton Rouge, and I will use his name because he is now at the big meeting in the sky, as we call it. And he got on that pulpit that day and he said, My name is Father O'Dwyer, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. And you know, I had never heard that before in a Catholic church and I can't tell you that I've heard it since in a Catholic church. It's not something that they talk about from the pulpit that much. But he sure did get my attention and I stopped and talked to him after church. And then I went to see him and Mickey and I both went to see him. And then he ended up taking us to our very first meeting. We went to the Goodwood meeting, I think, at the Broadmoor Baptist Church on Goodwood Boulevard in Broadmoor. And uh, I think that meeting's still going on. Yep, still going on. (laughs) Getting a few hands here. Uh, And so Mickey and Father went into the AA meeting, and I went into the Al-Anon meeting. Now, with that memory prayer that Clara read this morning, I can tell you that I know what the building looks like. In fact, I pass it every time I go to my daughter Gay's house. Uh, it's the scout hut for the Broadmoor Baptist Church. Uh, I still remember a few of the people that were in the room that day, that night. And uh, what I remember the most is that for such a very long time, I had felt like there was a great big void in my life, like I had a hole in my soul. And I remember thinking, Maybe this is what I've been looking for. So we went that night. We went back a week later to the next meeting. We went back a week later to the third meeting. And when we left that meeting the third time, Mickey looked at me and said, I don't like this meeting. I don't think I belong in these meetings. And we are not going back. Now you know what I was like. Back in 1975, I really absolutely gave Mickey all the power and control in our marriage. And whatever Mickey said, we did. I was a wimp. I was a doormat. I did not have the courage to speak up for myself or do what I needed to do for me. And I stuffed a lot of stuff in those years. And just like an alcoholic's anger or anybody else's anger, it came out sideways at a lot of the wrong people. And when I got really into this program, I had a lot of amends to make to my children for whichever child happened to walk through the room when I was very mad at their daddy the, the next morning after he got drunk or or just, you know, I just didn't know how to direct my own anger. It, it was not ladylike to be angry. But we are angry, and we just need to accept that and, and learn how to deal with that. Uh. But after that meeting, I can tell you. I mean, you know, we didn't go back for two years. Uh, but I, I started doing a couple of things different. And I, maybe it was something I heard in those three meetings, and I can't swear about that. I read a lot, but uh, when when I we'd go somewhere where there was going to be drinking, I learned to take my set of car keys too. And because I was so tired of going places, I'm going to tell you, I'm not an alcoholic by the grace of God. If I have two drinks, I'm ready to say goodnight y'all, see you tomorrow, and I go to bed and go to sleep. That's it. I mean, it just does not do for me what it does for alcoholics. But I was so tired of going places and having a drink or two, and I'm ready to go home, and Mickey is just getting started and be in there for hours later. And so I did learn to eliminate that. And I did leave him a, two or three times and take the car and go home because I knew somebody else would bring it. The other thing I did uh, was I learned to quit calling all around town looking for him. used to stand at that window like anybody else who's been married to an alcoholic and watch those cars come down the road and think the next one might be him. Uh... And I, and I would call the haunts that he had. And, you know, those haunts frequently lie about who's in the place, in the joint. <laughs> they don't always tell us the truth. And, uh, you know, one of the sickest things that I used to do during this time of my life that that uh, it's just part of my illness, and I am certainly not happy to say it, but there were times, not that often, but certainly two, three, four times, that I would get in my car and I would go looking for Mickey, leaving those children asleep in that house by themselves. Now that is sick. It's very, very sick. Uh, So I learned instead, and I started during this time not doing that anymore. Uh, I would go to bed and I would lock my bedroom door. And I never did that to be mean. I just had finally figured out that I did not have to sleep with that god-awful smell it's It's awful sleeping with somebody who's drunk and and so you know, he never knocked the door down. he banged and banged, and he'd finally fall asleep on the couch in the in the living room but But uh anyway, that's just what happened. And then in nineteen seventy six we had a crisis in our marriage, and what happened was i went I had gone to work, I had applied for a little job without telling Mickey. And I may have told him right before I got hired, but it was a little school job, which I thought, well, that'll work. You know, I can can work while the children are in school and then come home. And, uh, and of course, when I told Mickey, he hit the ceiling, which is why I hadn't told him I was thinking about doing it. Uh, But, you know, I did it anyway. Uh, I took that job. And it was good for me because I had been so at home with my children. And it was good to have some adult company. But also, what happened was uh, there was this fellow that I worked for. And he made me feel valuable. He made me feel like I had talents, like I was important. And uh, I became infatuated with him. And that's thankfully all it ever became was an infatuation because he was telling me all these things that I so desperately needed to hear that I was not getting at home. And I even remember telling him one day that I know that I don't love you, that I really want what I'm getting from you from my husband. And I was ultimately given an ultimatum there, and I I, t- I chose my marriage and, and walked out. Mickey, you know, I really suspected something was going on. But it was during this time that... that uh, uh, during this crisis uh, before, well, Mickey, Mickey came home uh, that night very, very drunk. And this is the crisis that I was talking about with my class reunion. And uh, I was, I, I got very afraid because Mickey was. Uh, Prone to depression, also, and so I felt a need to hide the gun in the house and his medicine. And he didn't want me to call the doctor. He wouldn't, didn't want to go to the hospital. But I made a decision that night that I could live with the shame of taking this drunk to the hospital at two o'clock in the morning. But I didn't think I could live with the guilt if I didn't do something and something happened to Nikki. So I went to a, a phone in another room and I called an ambulance. And Uh, They got him there, and a strange doctor was on. So the next morning, I was going to corner his doctor in the hallway. You know, we are so manipulative when we come into these rooms. We try anything and everything. And what happened was that doctor came in so fast, and I could tell he was getting ready to wheel around and walk back out. And so I just told him right in front of Mickey why I had called. Uh, And with that, he kept Mickey in the hospital about ten days. He had him see a psychiatrist. He had him see a psychologist. And he was there when I went home for my reunion. He didn't want me to go, but I went anyway. I mean, I felt like 25th class reunion is important, and I went for one of the two nights and then came back home. That was Mickey's last drink. And I I want you to please be aware that it was nothing that I did that made that Mickey's last drink. Mickey just made a decision at that time, that his drinking was not going to be the cause of our marriage breaking up, and I wish I could tell you that that began our wonderful life together in happy sobriety. But it began a three and a half year dry drunk that is pure hell for the alcoholic. It is just constant pain with no relief, and it's also pure hell for everybody that that's near him. I mean, we just—I used to say he was like a bolt of electricity coming home in the afternoon. And uh, so that's that was the dry drunk thing, and I, I don't wish that on anybody. And that fall, uh, Don and his wife and baby came back to Baton Rouge to live, and the baby was about a year and a half old then. And, and we were so thrilled to have her, her, and glad to have Don. We thought <laughs> until you know, all of a sudden we looked up and it was the same old, same old, same old friends same old things, and we were afraid that was going on. And uh, then two days after Christmas that year, his wife walked out and took the baby and her stuff and moved in with one of his supposedly best friends. And then two nights after that, we'd get a phone call from the hospital about 10 o'clock at night that they had done, and he'd gone off the side of the road in a bad rainstorm in his truck, and he totaled that truck and almost totaled his face. And We really felt sorry for Don, and we nursed him through that, brought him to our house to recuperate, and then we had it really up close because all those friends kept coming to our house. Or the phone would ring, and I'd answer the phone, and they'd hang up. Or or they'd be visiting, and I'd walk into that room, and everything would get quiet. And, you know, we were glad when he got well (laughs) and could go back to his own place, and, and we didn't have to look at that anymore. About three months later, I had a call from his wife, and she really wanted to talk to me. So I went over to that apartment, and I was there probably two hours, and she told me a lot of things that I knew. And then she told me a lot of things that I probably wish I never knew. But uh, and, I, and today, I really don't even know what it was. I, that's that wonderful repression kicking in here. Uh, but what happened was that was the day that my wall of denial came tumbling down. I mean, we all have, this illness is an illness of denial. The alcoholics are in denial. We are in denial. It's what protects us until we're able to, to deal with what's going on. And so when I left there that day, uh, I went straight to Baton Rouge General's CDU. And I did that because I thought that's where Father O'Dwyer had his office because he worked with alcoholics. And it wasn't. Uh, They put me with the head nurse, and we talked, and she called this member of AA, and and we met with him, and the next night we did a real zapped-up intervention on Don, and it worked. And he went into treatment, and he became our first identified patient in our family. Uh, And as God does work in his way and not in ours, Father O'Dwyer did have an office on that street about four blocks down but you know, we were right where we were supposed to be. Uh and that's when we really started learning something about this illness. Mickey they had a really tough family week at CDU back then. We we're talking about nineteen seventy seven now. And uh had had really bad press. A lot of people just were petrified of that family week coming up. And I remember Mickey saying and understand Mickey hadn't had a drink now in about nine months. But Mickey couldn't wait for Family Week. He said he knew all there was to know about alcohol, but he didn't know anything about those drugs, and he wanted to find out about the drugs. And, of course, what we all found out was that we knew nothing about alcoholism and how it affects everybody that's around, the parents, the the mother and father, the, the children, the grandchildren, the employer, the employee, even the dogs have enough sense to get out of the way of oh, an alcoholic. I mean, they really do. And so we began to see. I saw a lot of things that I, I could, hadn't seen before. I could see things, patterns, and how they worked out in that house. And, and uh, Don went off to a halfway house after that, and for which he always said he was very, very grateful and uh, gave him more time to get into good sobriety before he had to get back out with all the other normal people. It left us to deal with ourselves. Now I I want to tell you that very personally I am so grateful for good treatment centers and when I say good treatment centers I'm talking about ones like CDU was at that time and it may not be anymore, I don't know but this is what happened to us. Family week for us let us open some windows and see what was really going on in our house and in our family and extended families and and, uh, uh, and start dealing with reality instead of what we perceive to be reality uh, Don's counselor said that we were like eleven islands when we came there we all We all had the same last name, but we were all doing our own thing and there was just no connection in our family at all and That was tough to take, but you know what it was true that that is the way we were operating back then. Uh, and they didn't get any of us well, and they didn't promise they'd get us well, but but they told us then that treatment was only 10% of recovery, and the other 90% had to come in our rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and al and Alateen. And if we didn't follow through with it, that there would not be recovery. And I believed them, and I believe them even stronger to this day, as I see this over and over again. Uh, we started going to the care that they had, which was just a, a process once a week of going and really learning your feelings. And I can tell you what happened there. I was totally at fault. Uh, That was the first time that I found people that understood me. And I I think I saved up all my anger and resentments at Mickey until Wednesday night. And then I jumped his case every Wednesday night. And no one, he didn't like aftercare. You know, he just kind of quit going after a while. And I would have, too, if those tables had been turned. Uh, But I kept going to Al-Anon. I kept going to to, uh, aftercare. And it really got bad. Mickey hated me going to Al-Anon. And it only... It had to get worse for me to really get involved uh, or to me to really understand my need for this program. Uh, I mean, I would say on Monday night, every once in a while I'd jump up and I'd say, oh, I have to rush. And Mickey would say, what's the rush? And I'd say, it's my meeting night. And he would look at his watch uh, and he would get, I mean, he'd just get stoic. He didn't say another word. And, and then uh, when I'd come home, he didn't say anything. He'd just look at that watch again. He didn't say good night, hello, goodbye. He hated it. But you know what I think was happening was that he saw me changing, and he did not like that change. I was beginning to learn who I was, how to say what I needed and wanted, and, and uh, it really, really became my lifeline in nineteen eighty uh the beginning of nineteen eighty after three and a half years of that dry drunk, Mickey did finally go through treatment we did a we had done a little intervention on him when we were first in after care that did not work and we did another one at this time, and it took two minutes for him to say he would go i mean we were so- I was so afraid that he was going to commit suicide or or have a heart attack or a stroke and and he he felt the same way i mean he was ready to go. And uh, so, you know, he did get some help for that. And and I want to tell you one of the things that they told us early on in treatment is that if you come from an alcoholic home, the chances are that 50% of the children from that home will become an alcoholic or marry one. And I can look back at my family of origin, Mickey's family of origin. It was totally true. I can tell you in my, fam- my children now, five of our nine children have been through treatment. Still true. And that there's bad news and good news with that. I mean, I think it must be genetic predisposition, something. But the good news is I think recovery is contagious too. And that when we get into these rooms that others can get into these rooms and learn how to live. Now, I want to tell you the other good news is that yesterday, uh, Don is now 46 years old. And yesterday was his 25th AA birthday. And I'm really happy about that for him. He, I mean, he's been an example to me. He's my hero. On his uh, on his ninth AA birthday, his older brother called and said, "I need help." And he went over there where his older brother was and got him into treatment. So that one had 16 years yesterday. Uh, and I don't know who all has what. What this program teaches me is it's none of my business. I really do try to give my children the dignity and. To live their life as they please, and I don't always—I'm not pleased at how they choose sometimes, but it's their life, and and that's that's their choice to make, and they have their lessons to learn. I have a couple that, couple of them at least, maybe three that go to Allen nine, but I just don't ask them what they're doing. Uh, I try to mind my own business. You know, that's in these books here somewhere. Mind your own business. It's awfully hard to do when it's children. In fact, I laugh sometimes. I'm looking at a friend out here who's got one child, and, and you know, when I when I say, you know, we need to let go, I will tell you it is a hell of a lot easier to let go when they're nine than it is with one <laughs> when, you, when you got all your eggs in one basket. But, you know, when the the enormity, I uh, really one of Mickey's drinking buddies uh, they had nine children too and we carpooled a lot when we were in bad mood and we cooked together a lot and, and of course the fellows drank a lot and they fished together and and one time his uh, uh, the wife said to me uh, did, did I tell you that her brother-in-law and his wife were separated and this was probably alcohol related and I said no and, and her husband was one of nine children and uh, So I said, well, where is he? And she said, well, he's gone to his mother's. And he was about 50 years old. And I said, damn. And she said, what's the matter? And I said, do you realize he's 50 years old and he's gone back home to Mama? How long do we have to raise (laughs) him? So that was a real aha experience for me that day. I heard that. And, you know, I made that decision that day that I did not want to raise my children the rest of my life. So I've been able to let go and I'm grateful for that. Now, what I have found in this program is people who really know and understand my language. When I'm saying something, every one of you know what I'm saying. Uh, You understand my feelings. Uh, And that is such a gift to be able to talk heart to heart like we do in these rooms. Uh, I've gained a lot of acceptance. I've certainly had a lot of things that go on in my family and around me that I would rather not have. But... uh, Back to that, it's none of my business lots of times. I've just learned to accept things as they are and know that God loves those people more than I do. And and so I can let it go like that. Uh, And I have a little bit more wisdom than I had when I came here. Uh, I I think I do anyway. And then the courage that we pray for. You know, I told you I was such a wimp, and this was my big, strong, no... no. uh, no asset here. Uh, I did not have any courage, and and so, but I, I learned to have courage. You know, I I saw things happening to other people. I saw miracles, and and so I learned to step out and do. And one of my great fears was that something would happen to Mickey, and what would I do? To, you know, to support all these children. And so I found the courage to go to uh, school. It wasn't long time school, but I I went into real estate, and I got that. Uh, did that, and then I, I sold real estate for about two and a half years well enough. And then one day I had to get real. Uh, Mickey hated it. I mean, he wanted me home, barefooted in the kitchen every day when he came home. Now, let me tell you, it doesn't work like that when you're in real estate. You're not home in the kitchen at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So he just hated it. And I, I just had to get real and understand that I had gotten what I went for. And that was the knowledge that I could do something if I had to. But I did not have to at that time. So at 10 o'clock that night, I was out at my friend, my sponsor Betty's house, and we talked about it and I cried about it because I loved it. I mean, you know, it gave me such strokes. and I liked the paychecks. uh, But I made that decision that I had gotten what I had gone for, and it was time to let that go. So I did. And so I have... Also found the courage to close doors, and I think that is sometimes more important than getting the courage to open them. When we close doors, we always have to leave something behind that we'd like to haul with us, and, and it, doesn't work, it doesn't work that way. We just we just have to let things go. Uh, today, I'm a, a more spiritual person than I was when I came here. I am grateful for that. That religious education I had in my home and in that school, uh, it is there that i learned to believe in God as I understand God. But it's in these rooms in Al-Anon that I have learned to trust that God that I believe in. And I no longer try to uh, place my order with Him every day. I just I try to stay open to His guidance as to what He wants me to do in my life. In August of 1984, uh, I was getting ready to go on a serenity retreat down at the Seneca in Metairie. And Mickey on Tuesday night had had a really bad night and ended up going to the doctor who put him in the hospital right away. They determined by Friday morning that he had not had a heart attack, but they wanted him to have um, another angiogram done at Oxnard. And he wanted me to go on my retreat. This this is a 12-step retreat. So I agreed to go, and I was gonna one of the boys was going to bring him down Sunday, and I was going to meet him over at Oxnard. And at 5:30 uh, Saturday morning, I had a phone call that that uh, the hospital had called and said to come home, that uh, that I needed to come to the hospital. And I didn't know what I was coming for, but I can tell you that I was able to drive from Monterey to our LA, the lake here calmly. I drove as fast as I felt safe to drive. Uh, and I was able to be calm because I kept telling myself, you know, you're driving this car, and you're going so-and-so miles an hour, and you're passing. I kept my mind in the moment, and I kept it away from what I might find when I got to the hospital. But what I did find was that Mickey had been on the telemetry floor, and he'd gone into cardiac arrest, so they were able to bring him bring him back. But he was then in the middle of a, a massive coronary, and he was... Very critical that he was in CCU for about 13 days, I think, and on life support for 10 days. And, and, uh, you know, one doctor didn't think he would make it at all, and, and another was our, he was just our angel at that moment that helped us deal with that fear and the anxiety. But And Mickey did die a couple of months after that, but... Uh, he, he left a great big message, and I always like to share this. Mickey said that uh, that he never understood that first step, what being powerless meant, until he was lying up in CCU with just God and that heart pump and that respirator keeping him alive. And that was his spiritual awakening. And from then uh, until he died, he was in perfect peace. You know it's such a message to everybody, just just uh, understand that it's God in charge, not you and he was you know so he was just a different person he was like he was like the Pillsbury doughboy from you know from that then until he died, and it was it was certainly a great gift for us uh, I was so grateful that God had answered our prayers and given Mickey that peace. He had a lot of trouble with anger and depression. He used to say his, his anger was like he carried this bag of anger all around with him, and he never knew when the bag was going to come flying open, and all this stuff was going to go flying out and and he he hated that anger more than anybody else but so I was glad that he experienced what he did, and some people don 't ever experience that, so you know that was a real real gift. I was glad i'd been in the program and been able to do the eighth and ninth step with Mickey. Uh, I had made all the amends that I needed to to Mickey. I had decided what I wanted to give to that marriage, and I had done it. And to this day, I have never had to say, I wish I had, because I did before he died. Uh, and also, in, with this program, I was able to understand that I, you know, I knew that Mickey was the most important person in my life. But I had come to realize that he was not my whole life. So when he died, I did not die with him. You know, I was just crossing over into another part of my life and more lessons to learn in my life. Um, and and I learned a lot of things in in the ensuing years. In in being a widow, I had you know responsibilities that I had uh, to learn to assume and to do. And and uh, you know, it was it was a uh, a really good time I, I I learned to have some a lot of fun. I got to go places i 'd never been before we, you know we just didn 't have a bankroll full of money mickey just uh, Mickey just had this he had a good job but, but we had a lot of expense with the big family and then one of the things that that uh, I also want to tell you is about uh, work doing service in these programs and in in these meetings here I had always been willing to work in my home group and set up chairs, and and we used to have ashtrays to wash, y'all, you know, when we smoked and (laughs) we wash ashtrays and make coffee and things like that. And and I I did service at the local level, but the one thing that I wouldn't agree to is to be a group representative. I was still codependent enough that I knew Mickey wouldn't have it with me running off to Alexandria four times a year. But I've gotten to a point, and um, about the end of July of 84, I had said to Precious Al, who was one of our wonderful, wonderful people in this program up here, uh, at this little small step meeting I went to, I said, You know, uh, our, our GR seems to have disappeared. And he said, Yes, he has. And I said, Well, I, I really think we need a GR for this group. And Al said, Yes, we do. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm going, what way I'm going with it. <laughs> And so I, I said, well, you know, I believe if we do that I would be willing to, to serve. And he said, good. And it just so happened, uh, assembly was coming up a week or two later, and at that time something had happened at the hotel in Alexandria. We had a conflict. And so they had assembly here in Baton Rouge out at the Belmont, and I went. And it was love at first sight. I just loved assembly. I loved meeting all those people from all over the state. I can tell you who spoke that Saturday night. They had an AA and an al speak. I can tell you today who it was. And this is back in 1984. And uh, I, I just I couldn't wait to go again. we we'll see Mickey die two, two weeks later. And I will always believe that God knew I would have a need coming up, and he filled it before he even had it. And so service to me statewide filled a lot of that need. The recovery to me is so important. I want to tell you that, that I do not take it for granted. Uh. Every morning, uh, I have a little ritual. I carry my books with me. Sometimes I don't carry all the books when I go out of town, but I usually do carry my books, and and that's the first thing I do every morning is get my cup of tea or a cup of coffee and go in there and and do my readings. And and, uh, some of these things that I I read are in my memory. You know, I just have done them so many years. And and, uh, then, of course, I read all my daily readings, and I have more than Al-Anon than that I read from and then also on that after I finish my readings uh, I have my prayer list now this is very lengthy a lot, a lot of people have no idea that I'm praying for them. but I start off and I ask only that we all experience God's love peace strength acceptance guidance and just recently I added enjoy for today and I'm first on that list, and then all of my family and my children and grandchildren and great grandchildren and uh, I mean, it's three pages long, and some of it is just so and so in family, you know. But uh, I mean, I've got with my sister and and my children and all. I'm I, I visualize people's faces when I pray for them, and then the reason I'm telling you this is because when I get through with my prayer list every day, I know that I've done everything I can do from practically everybody on on that list. So I can let them go, and I can then just, just try to live my life that day as best I can. And uh, I learned this little trick from Father Stan. Some of you have made retreats under Father Stan. And he said that many years ago, that that's what he did, and how he talked to his daddy every morning, or his father, and his father died when he was four years old. But he had this conversation with him every morning when he when he did his prayers. So that's, that's the first thing I do. And I will tell you that I am committed to this every morning. I, I tell people it is more important to me than washing my face and brushing my teeth and combing my hair. It is an absolute commitment on my part. Uh, I have two wonderful sponsors. Ruth is in the room and Betty was going to come back, but she got sick. they on a little camping trip. So I'm missing her, but I'm so grateful for them. They've been there uh, for me all this time. And I'm still involved in meeting, I mean, in service work. Like I say, I talk to family members of people in treatment. And I go to meetings. Uh, I still go to two to three meetings a week. Up until the first of this year, I was still going to an open AA meeting once a week. and. Uh, I love them. Like I told you, I love AAs. I have learned in those meetings that not one member of Alcoholics Anonymous ever chose to become an alcoholic. It just happened to them and that they suffer from this illness. And I also learned them, I've heard it said too many times, that if anybody else would have given them another $25, they would have been dead. So I've learned to let go from listening to alcoholics and And they have learned about Alanine from me being in open AA meetings. And and, uh, I I love to to go to their meetings. Uh, Now, how I got to Mattery was way back in 1980 when Mickey was in treatment. There was a young person there who, and when his folks came up, he wanted us to meet them. And and sure enough, we turned out to hit it off and, and very similar. His dad was dry, drunken, just like Mickey, and uh, we became very good friends. We went to, through uh, three months of aftercare—I mean, of outpatient first—and then two years of aftercare. They would come up every Wednesday night for aftercare together, and and uh, they. I, I, this is a lesson. <laughs> I keep referring to all these lessons throughout our lives. We will only have very few. Couple friends, where all four people love each other. It's always usually one that doesn't like so and so, but anyway, George and Carolyn were one of these special couple friends, and so they just became part of our life. And when Mickey, when Mickey had the heart attack, and they were calling constantly, coming up, they were here with me when he died, and and for the funeral, and then. Until in my life, of course, after Mickey died, it never occurred to me that that was no more a part of my life. They certainly were a part of my life. And then Carolyn was diagnosed with cancer, in, breast cancer in 89. And it looked like everything was going to be fine, but it just didn't work. And it showed up elsewhere. And she died in December of 90. And, um, of course, I was there with her. I was down there a lot. And, And then George and I would just check on each other. And then we just discovered each other in a different way. And and it was wonderful because, you know, it wasn't any of this dating stuff. We knew each other. We had been through all of this heart-to-heart stuff together. And so we were married the 1st of February of 92. So that's been 10 years. February the 1st this year, we celebrated 10 years. (laughs)
1: You
0: want to wave your hand? (laughs) <laughs> you lucky man! <laughs> I tell him I've got a little bit more time in program than he does. I mean, <laughs> he's got what have you got, honey? Twenty three, twenty three, twenty four years. Okay, and I'm I consider May first. Mine will be twenty five for me this May first. So uh, anyway, it's just you know I like to tell people this because uh, you know we have we really have a marvelous marriage i mean we really it's peaceful in our house it's loving in our house uh, i think it's reflected in the house There's just a warmth when you come and uh we we work we play together and we pray together uh, we, have, we pray for people every night before supper, if we, unless we, we're not there, but sometimes we're away from that table. Uh, we have a lot of mutual love and respect for each other, and we learn from each other. And our latest lesson is we're learning how to work together, because as of the first of this year, we have assumed the administration of a, a charitable fund for a children's hospital down in Mexico. So we are literally working together. Now, and that's not always easy when you're, you know, always home together. But it's been really good. It's, uh, I think, I think we already feel some of the rewards of being able to do something like that together. So I just want to say, getting back, uh, getting back to the learning the lessons, uh, I will, I will close with just this two little sign, uh, lines from that beautiful song, Nature Boy, and it's, The greatest thing we'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. And I love you. They told me that I could give her this. You know, I'm still a part of them, so they were going to let me do this. So this is the Baton Rouge area's gift to Miss Pack for coming. Thank
1: you. Now do you know what
0: I mean? <laughs> And now I know her story, but um, the only thing I I always wanted to be like Miss Pine, I still do. But I never, ever wanted to have nine kids. (laughs) Never. I have one, and that is enough. So we thank you, Miss Pine. I don't want to
1: have nine kids (laughs) (laughs) either. She just wants one. She said
0: going to take about a three or four minute break or y'all want to roll right into bingo? Okay. Go smoke, go to the bathroom and come back and we'll do bingo.